Ultra. Welcome to Disney Animation Minute Essentials, where we are blasting through Disney's The Little Mermaid one minute at a time. I'm Kester Dorowski. I'm Andrew Dorowski. And today we are joined by Andrew Hawthorne from No Time for Heroics. Hi, folks. How are you? We, we are well, and we're glad to have you as a guest. I have really enjoyed listening to No Time for Heroics. I've, I've made it through. It took a little bit of time, but I've made it through the entire catalog of your oh, show. Man. Thank you so much. That's so nice. Yeah, we we have so many episodes now. I don't know what happened. It's what happens when you start like making a regular podcast. Um, You are also, I think, it's been announced, I know. So are you, of your two hosts, your two main hosts, I guess you you usually have the three of you now, but um, are you doing a Movies by Minutes or is... Anthony. We are. Yeah, I uh no, Anthony is going to be one of our guests. I'm actually going to be doing a a movies by minute podcast on the movie The Monster Squad from 1987. It's going to be coming up really soon. I'm hoping to have it out um before Halloween. And uh and yeah, it's it's just a movie I've loved with kind of the universal monsters in and in classic movie monsters and uh yeah, we're going to have a lot of familiar no time for heroics guests on that and a lot of uh, new faces too. Well, we will be looking forward to seeing another new Movies by Minutes movie because there are so many. <laughs> it's it's ever growing, but at the same time, oh, the more like the better, I never, yeah. I never want it to stop. Right, right, definitely. You know what's great? If if I can digress, what's great about Movies by Minutes, and I'm sure you you feel this too, is that you know y- you want a sequel to your favorite movie because you want to go back there, you want to just be in the world for a while. And with a Movies by Minute podcast, you can just kind of sit in the world and you're just like, wow, I can just sit in this minute for a little while and stay here for 15 minutes. It's yeah. such a great format. That's that's a really good way to describe it. So if there's like a movie that you enjoy and when you're when the movie's over, you're like, oh, I kind of wish I could just have a little bit more, but I don't want more of something different. I want just more of this, like stretch yeah. this out. That's what the what the Movies by Minutes really does for you. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. That's a that's a really good way to put it. You you got to like trademark that description. <laughs> All right. I'm going to trademark that Pete and Alex. <laughs> and I'll just send that to them. Well, uh today we are discussing minute 36, which begins with King Triton saying Merman finishing his line from before, so where he said, "I consider I myself, myself a, a reasonable, reasonable merman." merman. Oh, I, I I must correct you. He says merman. Yeah, it's yeah. True. It, it, he throws it off a little bit. It's true. And Andrew made the joke. I, uh, I thought because we're because we're we're Mormon. And so he's like, I consider myself a reasonable Mormon. <laughs> oh, he kind of does, right? Yeah. See, I I went in a different direction and assumed he was talking about Ethel Merman. So either <laughs> <laughs> <Get> way. <laughs> And this minute ends with Ariel screaming no continuously. Yeah, it's an ongoing uh, concern there. <laughs> As King Triton destroys a mirror or a picture. I think I think it was paintings. A painting? I think that was the painting shelf. Okay. In her in her cavern. Yeah, she has it well organized, so I think that was yes. the shelf of paintings. Shelf yes. of paintings. That is the soul of privilege right there. Oh yeah, my she, God. She, she doesn't understand how they work, so she doesn't hang them on a wall or anything. Like she do. just stacks them up. Well, but then again, I do have a lot of artwork I've picked up at Comic-Cons, and a lot of it is actually sitting on a shelf. It's mostly not framed and sitting on a shelf. I, I put you as much of, that. Yeah. as much as possible, I put it on the walls. 
But I do also have a shelf of artwork that right now we don't we, have room to put up. Right now, a, a lot, or I guess there's probably more that aren't in frames, but yeah. uh, a lot are in frames and are on, on our walls. And we have a lot of wall space because we are very blessed to. Yeah, have we have we have a very lucky apartment with a lot of blank right wall space that we can yeah. load up. <laughs> Uh, but minute 36 of The Little Mermaid features King Triton uh, confronting Ariel and about rescuing Eric from drowning. Ariel telling King Triton that she is in love with a human. Weird. And King Triton starting to destroy Ariel's collection of human things. Humanalia, as it were. <laughs> oh, hadn't thought about that one. Like but that. yeah, that's... Yeah, that's yeah. An accurate term for it. Yeah, definitely. Sure. You guys um, can keep it. <laughs> before we before we really get going, uh, because I've been forgetting to ask this question of our guests, what, what's your background with The Little Mermaid? Oh my gosh. Well, I was exactly the right age for The Little Mermaid when it came out, and, uh, and so was all over The Little Mermaid. And up until this point, I think my... Um, my favorite Disney movie was Oliver and Company, which was also the first uh, movie I ever saw twice in theaters. Um, but I remember playing uh, the soundtrack to The Little Mermaid incessantly. And it was also uh, an important time for me to explore gender archetypes, I feel, because many of the songs in, in The Little Mermaid uh, talk about being a girl and, and how I'm a girl who, who wants everything and, and various <laughs> things. And I'm a boy, or at least I was at the time. And, uh, you, you know, now I'm, I'm still a boy. I'm, I'm just a bigger one. But, um, but so I'm in a car belting out these songs and, and wasn't sure if I was allowed to sing those lyrics because I was very young. And, and so I, I kind of sang them very quietly to myself just in case anybody was going to call me on the fact that I wasn't, in fact, a girl and was making a false claim. So yeah, I, I love this movie, and and I also I just I always loved mermaid stories as well. I used to play like mermaid stuff with my my girlfriends when I was a kid, and and I love Splash, which also uh, came out in the eighties, the other big fish tale in the eighties. So so there you go. Well, that's I mean the music is like captivating. I'm not surprised that you were singing along with it because this is the good music. I mean, we mentioned. Last two, we mentioned two, it a lot, probably two weeks ago with your brother on on our on our episodes yeah. about Under the Sea about how you and- I, I like I was I was enchanted by the music when I was a kid, um, and I would like dance around to Under the Sea when this movie was on at home yeah. because you just have like you have to get up and dance to that song. Yep, it's just brilliant. Yeah, the the music is perfect, and and this movie. You know, it single-handedly resurrected Disney. Disney was in a lot of trouble. I don't know. On on No Time for Heroics, we did um, an episode on Robin Hood, which is one of my favorite Disney movies still. Um, but I, I talked to a couple of the animators over at Disney, Ross Blotcher and and Dale Bear, who worked on Robin Hood, about what what Disney the studio was like post Walt Disney, and and how you know there was kind of a lack of direction, and people just kind of wanted to stay the course and in some ways recycle what they had been doing and and some of the movies were rougher and and then this movie came along and it just re-energized the entire thing and it reinvented everything and just told everybody what Disney was for and and it was only after this that we got you know stuff like Aladdin and the Lion King but but this movie came first and it's that part of that that whole Disney golden age that happened at this period 
yeah, it's uh, like we have mentioned a lot how crucial this movie was to the survival of Disney as a brand and and as yeah. a company. And as a yeah, <laughs> and as as a bunch of mermaid lovers, you know, like they wouldn't have had that at all. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, okay. Let's 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 get into the minute then. I thought you were gonna say let's dive in. I thought about it. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> let's cannonball into the minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Ooh, we might need to borrow that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, into the minute. So I listened to the audio commentary um, for on our Blu-ray copy of The Little Mermaid, mm-hmm. which has um, John and Ron and. Um, and it's got Alan. And it's got Alan. And occasionally, we're, we're on a first name basis with all these people now. <laughs> yes. For sure. That's and, my buddy Alan over there. Oops. And occasionally, it will uh, put in quotes from Howard Ashman and old, old interview clips. Old interviews, because unfortunately, he he's dead. But uh, it happens to the best of us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people die, <laughs> but the audio commentary. I think it was John that was saying this, and then Ron didn't, like, he was like, wait, really? He, he hadn't noticed? He hadn't noticed. Okay, what was it? But throughout this scene, Eric's statue, his face, his expression gets madder and madder, as King Triton also gets madder and madder. So they're really oh, ha- wow. they're having, like, a battle. Yeah. With their facial features. Yeah. I had never really thought to look at that. I noticed it. It's it's kind of subtle, but mm-hmm. it's it's there. It's okay. it it is there. And but there's not a lot of shots of just Eric's uh face full on. It's yeah. it's usually he, he's, from he's behind or for profile. And I find it interesting that like when Triton first comes up, um Ariel gets between him and the statue. Like she's protecting the statue. But then as Triton gets angrier and angrier, she starts to hide behind the statue. Which, that statue is not going to protect you from your father's Triton. Like, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to work. I'm sorry, it's not going to work. <laughs> well, it's stone. I mean, you know, the, in theory, the Triton's just going to bounce off it. But, I have you know, a suspicion that like it's not it's stone. <laughs> oh, really? I, I, have, I have a comment on that later. But, um, yeah, I, I, I'm running a theory on that. Okay. Uh, we'll talk so, about it later this week. Mache. Statue that, um, but yeah, like like at first she's kind of standing or swimming in front of it and hiding it or trying to hide it, which is ridiculous because it's huge. It's it's a big gaudy statue. Um, It's which (laughs) when it was on the ship, it looked ginormous, especially compared to Eric. And then now here in the sea, it still looks big. It still looks big, but it looks smaller than it did. On the it looks ship. basically life size, yeah. But you're right. There's no way she could hide this. Really, he should be. She should be trying to distract him. You know, like what? Why don't you take a look at the Dinglehoppers over here? You want to blast those? Mm-hmm. That'd be cool. Um, and Triton, I feel like this is not a good dad moment for him. Like this, this week, he's not in the greatest dad mode. Which I found very interesting because as I was listening to the audio commentary, I felt it was a strange pl- moment to mention this particular thing at this moment, but they were saying that this film got a lot of, gave them a lot of fan mail and a lot of it was more serious than, than typical fan mail. Like serious fan mail, meaning positive, serious. Yes. Positive, okay. serious. Like there were several 
about fathers and daughters, like their relationships changing and a couple or was it because they saw this and like, Oh, I'm behaving like that. That's not good. I don't know. (laughs) Because like Triton's behavior here is not good. There, but there was one, there was one letter that they mentioned that said that a father wrote to them, thanking them for this movie because it helped reconcile his relationship with his daughter who he, he was estranged with. Which I do yeah. like that concept. Yes, but I felt it was strange to mention it in this. I don't. I don't think. Yeah. Well, scene. and maybe it's because it's kind of the most intense father-daughter scene. Yeah. It, and that intensity is bad in this case. What it is. What I like about it, though, is is this is a very complex moment for Triton, and I think that I've got more to say about this when we meet Ursula as well. In contrast to this moment, but um, what's fascinating about it is Triton is doing something he does not want to do. And and the last thing that happens in, in this minute, I think, is, is he's him saying, you know, this is the only way to get through to you what I'm saying, so be it. And I think that a lot of parents uh, have been in this position where, like, they know they're right and they're trying to get something through to this kid who doesn't know what she's talking about. And, and in some cases, that has to end in just... You know, not necessarily in violence, which, you know, in in human terms might be a spanking or might be, uh, you know, grounding you in your room or something like that. Not that I'm advocating any of these things, you know, but whatever, to each their own. Um, Or just like taking the kid's Xbox away. Um, But but parents are forced to discipline their kids and often the parents feel as bad about this as as a kid does. But a parent has to parent, so you got to do it. and, and the, the real sense I'm getting of Triton here is that he knows how dangerous this thing she's talking about is. It's not just a crush to him. And so he, he has to do something he really regrets and almost instantly regrets, but, but really believes it's the right thing to do. And, and what time shows in the movie is it wasn't the right thing to do. And, and, and the, the fathering that he's trying to do is not what she needs to hear right now to help her. And unfortunately, the people that are going to tell her things she needs to hear uh, are the wrong kinds of people. Yeah, I think um, what we kind of get in in this moment in particular is the evidence that like Ariel is Ariel is definitely wrong to be as cavalier as she is about humans. And Triton is also wrong to be as aggressive as he is about humans. Like they're, they're both some degree of wrong in this case. And Triton needs to learn that like, no, some humans like, like it's worth saving a human's life. And Ariel needs to understand, like you need to be really, really careful. Right. Cause he mentions, he and Triton mentions that the, contact between the mer world and the human world is strictly forbidden Mm -hmm. which makes me wonder why is it strictly forbidden like did something happen for it to be i I think it would just be her mother like would be enough for triton to make that like a royal decree or whatever her mother is is something happened to her mother in canon based on the second of the two extended films in the series which was a prequel ariel's beginnings uh it was about her mother who was killed by pirates at least somewhat like in the beginning that was that was part of it and and she's one of the mermaids from peter pan from tiger lily and and all that uh that's what some people have postulated there's a when you when you watch peter pan there is one of the mermaids on those rocks has red hair and a blue tail and 
it's like, hey, maybe that's a little bit aerialness. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's blowing my mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, listen, rewatching this though, uh, it, it really raised something for me as well because um, thinking back on this movie as an adult, uh, the 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 thing you ended up having to deal with is that Ariel has you know left everything behind to to go and you know become a princess with this kingdom um that eats fish and so she's gonna have to deal with this all the time and in this scene uh what uh mr merman here says is that they're a bunch of spineless savage harpooning fish eaters this is really intense rhetoric. Right? And so, you know, th- this particular anti-human bias raises a lot of fundamental questions about this world. Uh, the first of, of which being, what is Ariel's endgame here? Because obviously, you know, she, on one level, she's just a kid who is in love, and she hasn't thought this through right yet. Uh, she hasn't even met the guy, really. Um, but yeah. when, when ultimately, you know, spoilers, she ultimately gets on shore, she's shocked by the fishy carnage that's happening on shore, which we would probably call lunch. Um, but there's, there's fish being eaten there. Um, and, and she's about to become princess of a sea harvesting economy. So she's like, like her to him from, from his point of view, this may be kind of tantamount to you or I telling our parents, we were in love with this King of the cannibals and we were going to go and live there uh, for a while. Um, but it also brings up another issue. If I can continue this is that, you please, know who please do. the most fish? Fish. Yeah, other <laughs> other fish. Yeah, and you know, there's there's a really great Mitch Hedberg uh, joke about how if fish fish are always eating other fish, and if fish could talk, and you stuck your head into the ocean, it would just all all, all you could hear is people going, "Oh no," you know, because <laughs> that's all that's going on down there. And well, you know who else eats fish is Scuttle, uh, Ariel's best pal, who's a seagull. <laughs> Yes. Well, and this raises, I mean, this brings back some of the questions I've been asking about what fish count as fish as far as like her mermaid communications. Like she can't talk to sharks and we know that the dolphins and the, uh, the whales don't talk. Yeah. But and, and the a seagull is, counts, but a seagull, a seagull counts. counts for talking. And this is general Disney logic, you know, like, like look at Goofy and Pluto, you know, one is yes. an animal and one is a person in, in the world of this. So, you know, you're not thinking too deep about this, but thinking too deep about this, uh, what <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about, you know, well, what are the possibilities here? Because eating fish is being vilified, uh, but mermen can talk to fish. So maybe they're just not, not that into it. And, and I was wondering maybe if they uh, just ate kelp or, or something like that. But I, I think in, in a later minute, a solution presents itself. And so I, I'm going to save my conclusions to when we, we get a little closer to the sea witch, but, but okay. I, I want to throw this out there as a, as a question, like what is the morality of eating fish in, in the world of Merman? Mm-hmm. That's uh, it's a legitimate question. Um, we do see Ursula eat. I'm guessing it was some krill, but it could have been like a prawn or, or a shrimp even. Um, and she's using fish for makeup too, right? Um, something I don't of. know. She, it's exactly. some sort of like muscle. I guess we don't know that she squeezes that. Like it could that could just be a clever storage device. Exactly, it yeah. could just be makeup in a shell. So I'll, the, the the sustained. But but yeah, Friday, like the, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions going on about this. 
but also like it's a good film so you just kind of go with it yeah you're, you're not supposed to be asking these questions but you know it, it, it um what is it investigation is implied in our mandate so we we kind of <laughs> have to uh continue with with overthinking this i guess yeah, absolutely. Especially if if you're going to go through a movie minute by minute, there are going to be things that you have to question. These are the questions you should be asking that, if you're doing this sort of podcast. That directors were not thinking anyone would really like delve further into. Delve into like, the fathoms like, below? Oh, fathoms uh, below. Oh, don't start singing. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, you've raised some very good points. Uh, one of my main notes was, which those points we will have to address kind of as the film goes on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, it behooves you to to solve this this conundrum that that could result in Ariel presiding over a kingdom that feasts on her best beloved friends. So and and is potentially like using fishing as a like money crop. Oh yeah, like, no, it, like, it's that a, might a, be a, their a their export. Thing. It's, it's their economy, you know. So I, I'm from Newfoundland and Labrador here in Canada, and, and for a very long time, that's all we, we did. We just fished. And uh, that collapsed uh, there a couple decades ago, and we had to branch out. But it devastated this place I live in. We're only really now just recovering. So, like, if she just becomes queen of this place and is like, oh, by the way, that thing that everybody here does, that's mean because fish have feelings too, you guys. Like... Either she's going to be thrown out French Revolution style, or she's going to just end this economy. Which, I mean, it might be less of an issue if she were somewhere farther inland, but this is a coastal this, city. His castle's definitely... Like, his castle is the coast. On the coast, oh, yeah. so... It's a cliffside palace. She should have found herself a nice prince from Kansas or something, but no. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I'm also just now realizing that... At the beginning of the movie, we see the ship that Eric is on catching fish. Oh, yeah. And one of the sailors is, like, holding a fish that and gets that away from him and it gets back into the ocean. So, like, Eric was on a fishing boat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or he at was least, eating those Or at least, it, at least it did fishing. <laughs> yeah, his personal chef is, is you know... Is, uh, is, that's about fish. Rene Aubergenois just chopping fish up left, right, and center, so... Yeah. It's it's a question to be asked. Well, so with that in mind, let's let's ask a question about Ariel's motivation to become part of that world instead of become the under the sea world. Part of that world. <laughs> uh, she says, "But Daddy, I love him." Ugh. After after <laughs> this is ridiculous. Which I have to mention, she says this immediately after he says. So uh, he's talking about they, the humans, un- unfeeling, I- incapable of any feeling, mm-hmm. and, and she she's says, like, "But I, I love, love him." him. But like, leave it down unless you're going to use it. <laughs> Sorry, Kester's dropping a paper over and over. <laughs> but you know, like, no wonder he blasts this place to smithereens. Imagine if you're like, like, "Hey, you know that that wolf over there? It killed your grandma, but I love him." Okay, <laughs> like these are fish eaters. I love him, <laughs> and and like she. She hasn't had interactions. He doesn't know about her. And she's like 12 here. You know, I know we're not supposed to think too deeply about this. It's the same with Romeo and Juliet. They're like 12 and 17, yeah. I think. And, and she's... Yeah, and, and in this, Ariel's 16. I'm 16. I'm not I'm a, a child, child anymore. That's what she says. Oh, she's 16. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I was... I, I met my wife when I was 16, and I was told I was an idiot, too. But 
you know, you are an idiot. <laughs> but I, I assume for you guys, it developed over the course of some time and actual interactions. Yeah. And, and as a, a small known fact that might have helped Ariel here, uh, my, my wife Ainsley has never eaten anybody that I know or hold dear. So <laughs> that was a major part of our relationship. That that is significant, oh. and like Ariel hasn't asked around for like this guy's reputation. <laughs> she doesn't know anything. She could be a user, Ariel. You don't know. She just saw him for a brief moment, and then saw him drowning, and decided, "I'll save him." And then I'm so in love with you, and like I want to be part of your world because it, I'm in love like with you. And... A reverse Florence Nightingale syndrome. Maybe she just likes the way he drowns. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it, it like. Very few people drown in just the right way. Oh, so, so when you see it, you you know. <laughs> She's a big fan of the cure. This is just really nice for her just to get into it. But but I mean, looking at Ariel's character though, she's just been looking for an excuse to join the human world, and this is it. Like he's a handsome guy, yeah. but he's the first guy that's ever come into town. Um, it's like like guess what? He uses forks. That's what she's really into. Yeah, you know, like, it's it's more likely than not she's going to get up there, she's going to find out he's a jerk, and then she's going to move on. But now she's got what she wants. She's, you know, she's got her, her human green card, I guess. Yeah, so to speak. Yeah. But we, I mean, that would be next week where we actually get into the nitty gritty of what that contract entails. I know, but I'm going <laughs> to miss those minutes, so I gotta, I gotta say the... Uh, get it, in, get it in while you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Triton charges up the Trident. This is I, it is so hard to say Triton and, and trident, trident in the same sentence. Um, yeah. But he charges up his Trident, and I love the sound that they associate with it. I it sounds to me sort of like um, like running your finger over the top of a glass, like that glass oh, yeah. ringing sort of noise. But it's so good in this minute where it's just like this this ringing is building and building in pitch until he starts blasting. Right. I did think it was a little like, yes, we've seen this trident light up and do stuff before, like with him, with King Triton entering the The concert concert, and with when he gets angry, when he gets angry at at Sebastian Or or, or Ariel, but he gets angry and Sebastian's right there. You see it light up. But, okay, but wait, one quick question. As a weapons manufacturer, someone goofed because you should not make a weapon that responds to anger and like irrational emotion anger. You should make a weapon that like turns itself off in the presence of that emotion. <laughs> just to save people some trouble. Like like crimes of passion. You could just stop that right there. Yeah, you've you've got this uh, we we've Hi, uh, I'm a spokesman for Cold. We've designed this weapon that's only good good for cold-blooded killing. If you are angry or upset or anything, no good. You've got to just know in your brain that someone should die. Has to be dispassionate. Yes. <laughs> Calculated. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> well, now it, I'm it really, has to be, I'm like really to interested some, in this idea. It has to have some kind of emotion for Yeah, it. but this seems to, like... Ugh. Yeah, he... Because, like, he's an angry guy. He is. Yes. He's a very, he's a man of deep feelings. <laughs> he he has a short temper. But mm-hmm. with the glowing of the trident, it here it seems a little off. Oh. What do you mean off? Like, well, the trident, not the trident, like, itself glowing. Like the colors the, it puts into the scene. The, yeah. I, was, I had that note um, 
later on for like the color tones that it does because through this through this week we get a variety of settings and color tones and lighting choices mm-hmm. um and it, it's interesting like they they put the work in which is the same sort of work that they put into under the sea where they turn it all like warm and orange even though most of the time when they're underwater it's heavy blues which makes it feel colder mm-hmm and so this one, uh, I, through this one, when he when he's blasting stuff, it turns a lot of red light uh, on the scene, and that makes it hot—not warm, but hot and like right. angry. And like, and also it creates like a, a bottom lighting effect, so everyone's shadows are a little distorted because they're lit from below. Right. Do you think he lights this thing up when he's trying to tell spooky stories? I, it, it looks Ooh. like he could. Yeah. Ooh. Definitely. <laughs> Um, and then he starts. He starts blasting. He destroys a globe. Oh, not the globe! That globe looks so good. Andrew is a big fan of all things maps, maps and, globes. and globes. Oh man, this They're is so a good. Bad scene for you. Yeah, this, this one's rough for me. But I like. I mean, I guess we're getting close into the next minute here. But like, how how does that globe survive? Isn't that mostly made of paper? Yeah, but it could have been like sealed on the outside, so it really got floppy once some water got in. Okay. But we we've we've talked about paper before because she also flips through a book. Yeah, she's got books down but, there. But we know and, that and Sebastian has, has paper. Has some kind of paper in the beginning of the film when he starts conducting the orchestra. Yeah, he's got paper with music written on it. That's, yeah, so, so that's it's, it's a little... paper. I'm assuming that's made out of kelp with like squid ink on the on there for the notes. Like that's okay. <laughs> Specially designed. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then so I, my I don't know how this weapon works. No. Oh. Um and I have more comments about that tomorrow because we get to see it a little more, but like he blows up the globe just by like pointing at it and it seems to you know, basically just blasted apart. But then he's drawing like a laser across all the paintings on the shelf of paintings. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's kind of his. So it's, it's like a blaster wand. and a laser. Yeah, it's it's got some magic uh, uh, kind of powers on there. Like I, I don't know if it's got different settings, like like set trident to stun or something like that. But it's certainly <laughs> and devastating. It's, and it's not like it's like a magic wand or anything because he doesn't say any spells or he just points and yeah. and that's like it and it he i feel like yeah because he he moves it across the paintings but before that he was he pointing point, he was like pointing it, it, did he point at the um the candelabra in this the one candelabra with the dingle hopper and the dingle hopper float flies I, up I, to I, the I paused front it. of the screen i paused it when i was watching it with out without you because uh-huh. you were at work and and because you have to do a lot more research yeah <laughs> and the the dingle hopper looks like it's still intact it just flies away so it doesn't exactly so it only destroys what it directly contacts but things that are next to it i imagine it's kind of hard to destroy a fork with a laser blast though you know that it, it's kind of <laughs> small that's, that's a good point you're just gonna push it away or maybe the trident doesn't work on it because the Dinglehopper is also basically a trident. Well, maybe, exactly. This is what I wanted to get at, is that maybe he meant to blast things <laughs> like he blasted the globe, but when the trident noticed a candelabra and a fork there, and the fork has four tongs, and it's only got it's like, this three is too similar. tongs. Like, I think this is a little jealousy, and now the trident has to kind of <laughs> prove itself, you know? Perhaps. I, I so have the some trident- more... 
So the comments. Tri- <laughs> so the trident has feelings. I mean, the fish oh, have feelings. Oh no! So the magic weapon has feelings too. Yeah, why not? It just wants to okay. be part of your world. Maybe it's a, it's a little of that same magic that you get in Beauty and the Beast in a few years. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Um, I have I have more notes about the trident, but not until tomorrow. Okay. So I'm out of notes for today. Yeah. The too. only the only last thing that I want to mention, and I wanted to mention it earlier, and I just looked back at my notes and forgot I skipped over it. King Triton. Earlier in the film, he has white hair and like really gray eyebrows. Yes, like notably not white eyebrows. These eyebrows in this minute are more off white ish. They're not. They're not gray. I think it's just the the color setting in the environment. Okay. You don't think that she's it, driving him to it? Like, just the stress of this horrible daughter of his? It's, it's getting them paler and paler, and now they're kind of an off-white pale. <laughs> yeah, by the end of the movie, they're just they're just puffing and falling out. He's just so <laughs> stressed over this thing. Perhaps. That's all I have. Okay. That's all we have for you today, listeners. We are part of Dueling Genre. You can find us and many other podcasts at DuelingGenre.com. There you will also find a link to a Patreon page where you can support all Dueling Genre productions. We are on Twitter and Instagram at DizMinute, on email as DisneyAnimationMinute at gmail.com, and on Facebook at the Disney Animation Minute Secret Essential Listener Society or Damsels Group. Our guest can be found at... You can find me at NoTimeForHeroics.com, on Twitter at NoTimeNumber4Heroics. Or on Facebook at the No Time for Heroics Hall of Great Justice. And if you wanted to support us, you can't at all. I should really get around to making some merch one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it would be uh, worth doing. Except I feel like the gags on your show are pretty much all audio gags. I don't. I can't think of like a visual gag that would match you guys. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> like you, you can't do like a French accent shirt. Uh, ga- uh, French Canadian gambit. Well, I thought of doing yeah. an X-Men Oranges Wolverine and just doing kind of a breakfast with claws, but I'm not sure <laughs> if that would really play. Yeah, well, we'll keep we'll keep thinking about it. All right, we'll, we'll workshop it uh, before we uh, come back tomorrow. <laughs> we want to thank Star Wars Minute for kind of pioneering the whole Movies by Minutes thing. And until next time, listeners, thank you for making us part of your world. I gotta do it in tune, because... Because of our guest. Yay! (laughs) 